this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better today. That's right. And today we have a special guest. But first, of, today is the first time we have recorded in person, I think. For, Since COVID. I think so. Wow. We are recording in person. Yes. With our special guest. Yes. Who is our sister, Liz. I'm honored to be here. And Liz, again. my friend Lisa, said to me the other day, oh, are you going to do another one with your sister Liz? <laughs> oh, I have a fan Hers following. are among our popular, our, her Kyron Horman episode is our second most popular. Oh, wow. After the Turpins, inexplicably, the Turpins are our number one. Uh, well, uh, fucked up family. Yeah, uh, yeah, right. Yes. And there's some of that in the Kyron Horman story, too, I guess. Oh, and for those of you who are newer to us, Liz is a history professor who lives in Portland, Oregon, the other Portland, yes, as we like to call it, and she brings <laughs> us tales of murder in the Northwest. Yes, yes. So um, I have an update. Okay. Liz was up at my house and we went on a trip because I wanted to take some photos for our newsletter that our Patreon subscribers will be getting very soon, despite the look of skepticism on Becky's face. <laughs> we took a little route around New Hampshire's White Mountains to some of the sites that some of our episodes, namely Louis Chaput, which was, oh, I was going to look up the numbers for the episodes. I can't remember. And then uh, Maura Murray, which was episode eight. Our Maura Murray episode, just to say, was not your typical, ooh, what happened to Maura Murray, but was more a look at the internet sleuth phenomenon and how it can twist things into things that they aren't. But then we went to, from there, a very short drive to the area in Franconia where the Bruce McKay, Lee Kenny incident took place, which I think was episode 20. And then up to Colebrook where our Carl Draga episode happened. And I can't remember. I think that was in the 50s. But in any case, our trip particularly involving Louise Chaput. It was episode 75. Okay. To remind those of you who may not remember that episode, she was from Quebec and she had come down to the White Mountains to go hiking. She was going to stay at Joe Dodge Lodge at the AMC Welcome Center on Route 16 near Pinkham Notch. And she talked briefly to a clerk there who suggested she take a hike on the Lost Pond Trail, which the trailhead was across the road. It was late in the afternoon in November, and it was going to be dark within an hour. She ended up being murdered off the Glen Boulder Trail, or her body was found off the Glen Boulder Trail, a different hike about a mile away down Route 16. And speculation for the past 20 years, this was November of 2001, has been that, ooh, why did she go on that other hike? She'd still be alive today. Here's what I said in our episode. Whether she planned to hike Lost Pond Trail or not, she drove to the Glen Boulder Trail parking lot about a mile south of the center and parked there. It's unlikely she would have intended to hike the Glen Boulder Trail because it's labeled as difficult and not very scenic, given that it was about to get dark out. All the accounts that say, oh, she was going to hike the Glen Boulder Trail. We'll, Liz and I will discuss in a minute what we saw there. And who knows why she parked there. The parking lot is accessible to the Glen Ellis Scenic and Picnic area. It's across Route 16 from a much shorter trail to Lost Pond. So maybe she wanted to hike to the pond, see the view of Mount Washington, or who knows. And I do a lot of things and then think, gee, if I were murdered right now and this was on a true crime show, they'd have a hell of a time. 
making sense of why I was doing this. There were several news accounts that said police said that she was hiking the Glen Boulder Trail. Liz and I, this is why it's always good to go to a place. When we got there, at the trailhead, there's actually a walking tunnel under Route 16 that leads to Glen Ellis Falls. And from there, Las Pond is just a short ways after that. So my guess is, as I speculated in the original episode that she probably said, I'm not going to go on a two-mile round trip hike on a trail I haven't been on before when it's going to be dark out and it's November. And I'll just go to this place right down the road where I can quickly just see that. Or And the distance to those falls was just three-tenths of a mile, according right. to the sign right there at the parking area. So it's area. a pretty short walk. So that would be have been a real quick, maybe nice little walk. Right before dark. Yes. And looking at the parking lot, my guess is that the person who had the opportunity to kill her probably saw her in the parking lot or followed her there from the AMC Mm -hmm. where they may have seen her. And the Glen Boulder Trail is right there. So probably dragged her up there to get her out of sight of the road. Yeah. You that's know, what I would assume. That's what, that's what it looks like when you're yeah. there. And that's what we speculated yeah. on the yeah. thing. And a little more on that type of topic, on another place we went was the site where Maura Murray disappeared on Route 112 in North Haverhill, New Hampshire. And our last update on that was that the people who owned the property where her car crashed it had cut down the tree that the ribbon was on, and I think I said in that update, well, why don't they just put it on another tree? So, but what Liz and I discovered is that the people (laughs) who owned the property had cut down all the trees lining the road, and I didn't take a photo. At the time, like, there's somebody behind us, and and there isn't a good place to pull over, but I also kind of felt these people are probably friggin' sick and tired of internet, quote-unquote, sluice, stopping by their property like it's a tourist site, which is one reason they cut down the trees. Yeah. And so I'm not going to stop and take a picture. And we did watch the past couple nights a six-episode, The Disappearance of Maura Murray. And Liz, you had seen it before, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, And I'm not going to do an NNW about, about it, but I do want to say it just reaffirms my frustration and Liz can attest to this because she had to listen to me bitch for the full six hours, (laughs) of the speculation that goes from, like, A to Z without going to the rest of the alphabet. And the first three episodes of that were basically looking at all Maura Murray's troubles. And if you're not familiar with this case, listen to our episode eight. Mm -hmm. Um, Most people are, so I'm not going to go into all the details. Liz and I kept saying, what happened to her happened on Route 112 and and not in Massachusetts. I will say that uh, Maggie Freeling, the host or narrator or investigator, because she was, it's one of those things that kind of annoys me. I'm going to investigate this and find out what happened. She was like the... But she did debunk a lot of the stupid internet theories and types of things, and we won't go into all of them. But I do feel, too, it was a little exploitive because a lot of the information that she, quote-unquote, discovered has been available for the past... 16 or 15 or 14 years. This happened in 2004. So she made a lot of hay out of the internet theories before she quote-unquote debunked them. And it was also fairly exploitive, like asking Maura's father if he sexually abused Maura just because James Renner, who's a total phony in his book that implies that, said it doesn't mean you have to ask that. 
Or if you're going to ask it, you can say, James Renner implies you sexually, instead of just saying, did you sexually assault Maura? And how how is he supposed to answer that in a way that people who actually believe that has something to do with her death will find believable? I hadn't watched it just because I was so... Annoyed? uh, The whole case just... But like Louisa put the speculation, if she hadn't gone hiking on this other trail instead of the trail she said she was going to go hiking on, and it's like she didn't say she was going to. She she was a native French speaker. She was talking to somebody who spoke English. She was probably politely nodding or something when they suggested she go on the Lost right, Pond Trail. Right. I don't think she ever said, yes, I'm going to go over right now and hike that trail 100%, definitely going to hike. And same with Maura Murray. People make these leaps from, for instance, there's the assumption that she got off exit 17 and went directly over, and so there's this missing hour, because it took them an hour hour less to drive up there 13 years later than it took her to drive up there. I'm like, how do they know she got off that exit? Maybe she got off earlier and said, I'm going to drive up the New Hampshire side of the Connecticut River, and it would take her longer because it's a two-lane highway. So this this whole, like, total speculation with no evidence is considered fact. Oh, Cecil Hotel. Cecil Hotel. Los Angeles. I mean, people just was rampant the, speculation. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. And then they take the speculation and make it fact. When right, it, right. when I always saw hers was it was relatively simple that yeah, right. Yeah. If it. if you take away but, all the the theories about like somebody following her and then her living a new life in Canada, which is basically impossible to do, that whatever happened to her happened on that highway and it was probably a sexual predator. Yes. Right. Who either Lives. raped her and she fought mm-hmm. back, so killed her without that being his initial intention, took her or somewhere and dumped her. Right? I mean, yeah. It was a, yeah. Probably opportunistic, but you never know. I mean, you wouldn't expect that to happen if you're out. The one person that comes by when your car is broken down is some nutcase, but it could happen. Well, it one it does the, happen. One of the things that I think was good in this uh, documentary series was that various people who were involved in the investigation spoke in a straightforward way about what was going on with the investigation that I think if anyone who's willing to take that seriously, mm. it should put to rest a lot of the, this internet stuff. And I appreciated hearing the guy who was in charge of the search talk about the extensive search, the lack of footprints right. in the snow yeah. that could be ascribed to her that showed that almost, you know, it was it's like 99.9% certain that she was picked up down the road a little ways right. by a vehicle. And why, you know, that is the most obvious right. explanation. And, and a lot of the speculation in the show makes this clearer, but not to like the fifth or sixth episode, a lot of people doing the speculating don't understand like how small town police right, departments right, right. and policing works. For instance, there's been all the, like, why didn't the state trooper who showed up search and blah, blah, blah. And his explanation of it was fairly clear. And it's something like I would know from my years of journalism in small northern New England towns, right. the state police guy is patrolling this huge swath of area. The local guy had it in hand. They didn't think anything more than this this young woman had gotten into an accident and she'd been drinking, they speculated, and didn't want to deal with the police, which happens a lot. And so he saw that it was in hand and he went to do the rest of his job because he can't take an hour or two, hour three or four, and he's like being he indicted. Has to, he has to control this vast right. swath. Yes, right. He's like the one trooper who's assigned. Right. People from like big cities and stuff don't understand that. They like, need, and that's how there's know. a Like in Maine, it's from Bangor North or whatever, right. one trooper. Right, yeah, I mean, right. That's, right. a, that's hundreds and, of miles back and forth. And, and, and then just, things like this woman who drove by and saw 
an SUV was 001 from the Haverhill Police Department. And one of the internet speculations is, well, that was the chief's SUV, not the cop who stopped. So the chief was there before the cop who stopped. And he must have drunkenly hit her and blah, blah, blah. And <laughs> taken her away and, and all this. And I noticed in the TV documentary, instead of saying that was the chief's SUV, they worded it. The chief is known to drive that SUV. But one thing I was thinking, and it's even in my books, the little police department had one SUV and they had one cruiser. And it was winter, so the guy patrolling at night is driving the SUV, which he explained when they interviewed him. But again, this wasn't unknown. This is something, and I give Maggie Freeling credit for making it clear in her pseudo investigation, (laughs) but all of this information was available, is available to anybody who's paying attention. And so that's one of the things that bugs me. The internet sleuths keep refusing to acknowledge logic and actual facts to spin this whole thing. They discount the stranger abduction because of what are the odds but it happens, it happens. and actually it's more likely than all the well, wild when you think about how often does it happen that you break down and somebody gives you a ride somewhere and nothing happens a lot and if that had happened to her we wouldn't be talking and about i know it. that right, right. one i mean i think i told you about one time my car got stuck it was daylight, got stuck in a dirt road because it was before GPS, or I didn't have it, and I was going by Google Map to go someplace, and it sent me down this weird road that looked like a regular road, Mm. which it was for 100 feet, and then it turned into a dirt road, and it was March, and it was muddy, and still there was snowbanks, so I got stuck. I was like, ah, and then I didn't realize that my car locks its doors if you have the keys in the ignition. So I was locked out. My purse was locked inside the car. Oh, I couldn't call AAA from my phone because it was in the car. So I was going to walk somewhere. Right after that, some guy in a truck came up behind me because he was going down this road to walk his dog. And he lent me his phone um, to call AAA. So he was he was nice. It was a young man with a nice dog. But if I had been in another situation and yeah, someone yeah. said, you want me to give you a lift, and it was the same nice, seemingly right. nice guy with a dog. You, you also were in a place where you probably could have been attacked or right. pulled into his truck. I could have easily been pulled into his truck. There was nobody yeah. around. And, and, right. and one thing is, people make these very black and white assumptions like, it would have had to have been a serial killer who would have right. stopped no. him. No. Where it could have been a guy who one is... One of those opportunistic... Just a, a predatory guy who maybe doesn't make a career out of raping and killing woman, women, but said, ooh, and picked her up, and it could have been, uh, I hate to use this term, but a rape gone bad, yeah. or anything else. It, it doesn't have to be a serial killer happens to be driving on yeah, Route 112 right, right, in Woodsville, right, New right. Hampshire. It's When you look at some cases and how many possible suspects exactly. because of how predatory... There have been studies where more than 50% of men will answer yes if the, when the question is, if you could rape somebody and get away with it, would you do it? Right. And it's a high number. I don't know the exact number, but it's a high number that have said yes. Right. So if you're driving down the road, you see a pretty young woman there in need of help. And maybe I can get lucky. And then if you can't get lucky, you make yourself lucky. Or, and who knows if she was even raped since they haven't found her yeah, body. that's true. But it could have been a situation where he hit made her. a hit on her hit on her, oh. and she 
was like, oh, get away from me, you're gross, I don't want to, then he did something. But it could have could be also the situation where somebody hit her. Although, according to this documentary, there were three neighbors, and it's very dark out, but this documentary implies that these neighbors are watching the whole thing almost the entire oh, time, and something like that somebody would have seen. My feeling is, she was down there for 15 or 20 minutes, they're not all standing at the window. And if also, they were that concerned, one of them would have gone down. They would have heard right, the right. crashing gone down. And also, right. nobody, unless you are living out in the country or have ever driven you don't know how dark it is on the road right right there are no street lights it is friggin dark right. yeah right, right. and it's so not, right anyway. so did you have anything else liz you no. want? okay <laughs> so i do have another update before we okay. get to sorry i know you're anxious to get to your story but you know how we roll here yes we have a lot of stuff so in an update to episode seven main murderers and the women who love them and also, there, I did a bunch of updates to this. Luke Tiemann Ugh. was in court on August 23rd for a post-conviction review, I think. And the reason I say I think is because this was not covered by Maine's one newspaper conglomerate that controls five out of the six dailies in the state, nor was it covered by the other daily, the Bangor Daily News, even though it was in Skowhegan, in court in Skowhegan, so it should have been covered by the Morning Sentinel. It was not at least that I can find. It was covered by one TV station, and the report on it was not complete with background information or information on what kind of hearing it was. So, Tiemann was found guilty in 2018 for murdering his wife, Valerie Tiemann, 34, in August 2016. Tiemann originally told police his wife had disappeared from his pickup truck in the Walmart parking Mm. lot in Skowhegan while he was in the store. This was after her family in South Carolina reported her missing when they hadn't heard from her for three weeks. She was found buried in Luke's parents' backyard in Fairfield, Maine. He said then that she'd OD'd on heroin... Although there is no, and I want to stress this, no evidence she was a drug user at all. He panicked and buried her. But the medical examiner found that she'd been shot twice in the head and the (laughs) neck with a gun Luke had bought, or a gun that matched ballistically one Luke had bought shortly before she disappeared. Mm -hmm. Tiemann had delivered his own closing arguments in his trial. Of course. Denying that he had killed, quote, my beautiful wife, his remarks were described in the newspaper coverage as disjointed, and at times <laughs> he made references to things that Hannapin brought up in evidence. One thing he didn't make reference to, nor did his lawyer, from what I can tell from the coverage, make reference to was any PTSD or issues related to his service in Afghanistan and Iraq. He appealed to the jury's common sense, quote-unquote, saying (laughs) it could not have been he who killed Valerie, and there were alternative explanations for what the state produced as evidence against him. Yet, he was sentenced to 55 years. He appealed to the state's Supreme Judicial Court in 2019. His attorney at the time, because he's another guy who's fired a lot of attorneys, Clifford Strike, who you may may remember from our last episode, (laughs) Yes. And as no, of and as right, I was going to say, as no relation to Cormer and Strike of <laughs> J.K. Rowling's uh, books, argued that Facebook messages, and this was in the appeal between Valerie and a Facebook friend about Luke's infidelity, should not have been admitted as evidence in the trial. Strike said it was impossible to verify the message's true sender and that they were hearsay, and he also said there wasn't enough evidence to convict. But the Supreme Court denied the appeal, saying that the friend testified the messages were authentic that they had she had written them and they were between her and valerie she had originally written to valerie saying hey luke's cheating on you with somebody the court also ruled there was little chance 
that that news influenced the jury's opinion because of the litany of other evidence against Tiemann and the testimony of Tiemann himself that he was the one who buried her and the fact that she was shot in the head and neck by a gun he'd bought or that matched ballistically when he bought. And there was evidence to back up the infidelity, including the fact that he moved in with a girlfriend shortly after she disappeared but before her parents in South Carolina reported her missing. So last year, Tiemann tried to get the judge who'd been on the case recused because of his rulings, including rulings on things like time restraints, biased witness testimony, ineffective assistance of counsel. His document was 79 pages long. He said, I was... The judge must have been thrilled. I know. He said, I was biasly given to the wolves, basically, (laughs) in court. (laughs) That's legalese. That's legalese, right. Assistant AG Leanne Robin um, said in court last year, his mere disagreement with the judge's rulings and instructions does not create a case of bias against the judge. The judge knows the law. Mr. Tiemann does not. And Tiemann, at this point, was on his third attorney, having fired his two previous ones. So that brings us to August 23rd, just last month, when he was in court for what I believe is a post-conviction review, which you can bring up if there's new evidence, Hmm. because he's exhausted his appeals. As I said, it's hard to determine because the one TV station that had a story on this didn't have any of the legal aspects or why he was there. He was being represented at this point by a guy named Tom Connolly, It was held in Somerset Superior Court in Skowhegan, yet the Morning Sentinel, which covers Skowhegan, did not cover this. It looks as though he's now arguing, quote-unquote, new evidence that PTSD related to his service in Iraq and Afghanistan should have been part of his defense. This issue didn't come up, and if it was mentioned, it wasn't a part of his defense, and it was not a part of his appeal, and even though the ones he he's the one who gave the closing arguments in <laughs> yeah, his he trial, so and he can't blame his lawyer when he's the one. Yeah. Well, although he can blame his lawyer for ineffective counsel for not offering it to him as a, as a defense. His defense attorney, as I said at the time, was Stephen Smith. It's hard to say for sure because a lot of these stories just say his defense attorney and don't say anywhere in the story who his attorney was. And I won't go on yet another lengthy rant about the quality of journalism, but any reporter should have that. And if the reporter doesn't, the editor should sure as hell ask who was representing him. We need that in the story. He also gave a lengthy interview to Samantha York of WCSH-TV, Maine's biggest TV station, right after he was sentenced. And he he didn't mention PTSD and it didn't come up. There hasn't been a ruling on that review. And I'll do an update that will hopefully have more information when there is. I'm sure. But it sounds like he's just grasping at a lot of straws. The bottom line is he was cheating on his wife. He killed her because I guess that was easier than dealing with a divorce. And then he lied and painted her as a drug addict, which she wasn't. And then is now pulling every stop he can to try to get out of his 55-year prison sentence. you figure you're in prison, you got nothing else to do. Right. Now it's time for Liz's. And we're so excited. She's given me many, many hints over the past few days. She said, well, in my story, and I'm like, la, 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 don't tell me, don't tell me. So (laughs) we talked a little about it, but it's not something I'm familiar with. Oh, she told you what it's about? A little. A little little bit. Okay. I don't want to know because I like being surprised. Well, I'll still be surprised. Okay. Here's one finally back after pre-COVID. Oh, I know. It's been a Uh, It was Christmas of 2019. I was last year. was that the Michael Frankie episode? Yeah, that must have been the Michael Frankie yeah, episode that yeah. we did. And there's another episode I did that I'm going to be referring to where I'll need your 
Is, is that life. the Route 21 Yeah, yeah the Route 21. Guy. And there are no updates in the Kyron Horman case. Aww. Kyron Horman is still missing. That, Aww, so it's sad. And, and we did also watch face. a we watched a documentary about that that wasn't half bad. It wasn't I think half an bad. ID discovery. Yeah, yeah ID little discovery. Boy lost. Yeah, one, one episode. Right. And it's actually a pretty good overview. I actually want to talk about two cases today. They have a common theme of crimes that occurred in or near campsites in Oregon. Um, And there are some other interesting parallels and connections as well. Most of my sources were contemporaneous news articles from local, more or less local papers, the Medford Mail Tribune, the Statesman Journal of Salem, the Capital Journal of Salem, the Corvallis Gazette Times of Corvallis. A lot of these were AP articles, which indicates that maybe that someone in the AP bureau for or something was doing... You, usually, if it's been like the past 20, 25 years, it means AP picked it up from another newspaper. Yeah. We discussed that. It's, okay. um, it, this was in 1974. Did you access these through newspapers.com? Yeah, yes, I did. However, I do... And now this is not a crime where I saw much podcast coverage. I think there was one called Park Predators that had covered this case. And I didn't really listen much to the one episode on it. But I have to say the woman who runs this podcast, Delia D'Ambra, had a very extensive source list. And so I used that to kind Mm. of find, kind of went through and found all of the news articles and the other sources. There is um, also a Strange Outdoors blog that has some information on this case. There is a a KO affiliate of NBC in August 2020 had an interview with Richard Davis who uh, a retired Oregon State Police detective who's like the last remaining investigator who had worked on this Mm. case and also Ann Rule in a book she published in 2009 But I Trusted You has a chapter on this case called Dark Forest Deep Danger and it seems pretty thoroughly researched, but I didn't get a sense she actually interviewed people. So this is, uh, so I will begin and talk about this case and then a bit about another case that has some interesting parallels. The Cowdens were a young family living in White City, Oregon in 1974. White City is a small community near Medford, Oregon in the southern part of the state. Richard Cowden was 28 years old and supported his young family by working as a logging truck driver. His wife, Belinda, was 22 years old. They had a five-year-old son named David, a five-month-old girl named Melissa, and the family dog, Droopy, a half-grown Basset Hound puppy. And and I just have a picture of Droopy here. Oh, let me see. He's a good boy. And going into Labor Day weekend in 1974, the Cowdens made an impromptu decision to go camping. Originally, Richard had planned to spend the weekend doing a graveling job, but at the last minute, some larger truck that he needed to haul the gravel was not available, so they just, on the spur of the moment, decided to go camping and left on August 30th. The campsite they visited was when they had camped at a number of times before. It was an unimproved site along Carberry Creek in the Rogue River Siskiyou National Forest in the Siskiyou Mountains. The Siskiyous are a sub-range of the Klamath Mountains that range for about 100 miles from northwestern California and to southwestern Oregon. The campsite was about one 
mile north of the California border, and terrain that was forested and rugged, laced with old logging roads and abandoned gold mines. Uh, some of these gold mine shafts were as old as 100 years old. Ooh, 100 wow. years. Despite the ruggedness, however, the site was not as remote as it might seem. The tiny hamlet of Copper was just one mile away, consisting of a general store and a few homes. Belinda Cowden's mother, Ruth Grayson, lived in Copper and worked at the general store. Oh. A copper and the stretch of Carberry Creek where the Cowdens camped later was flooded. That's a lot of alliteration. I know. know. It was later flooded to make Applegate Lake when the Applegate River was dammed um, some some years later. So I think there's still part of Carberry Creek, but much of this is now under a lake. On Sunday, September 1st, the Cowdens were on the last day of their Labor Day weekend camping trip. Richard and David, I assume walked because there's no mention of them using uh, the family truck, the 1956 Ford pickup oh. that they had driven to the site with. So Richard and Davis probably walked to the one the one mile to the general store about 9 a.m. to pick up a carton of milk, and then they returned to camp. The family had plans to have dinner with Ruth Grayson, but Linda's mother, that evening on their way home. When they did not show up, Ruth went to the campsite to see what was keeping them and found no one at the site. The campsite looked like the family had just left for a walk or a swim, but there was no sign of them, and Ruth was uneasy. She left to fetch her friend Guy Watson, who was the owner of the general store, to help her search more thoroughly. So they both came back to the campsite and started to search more and call for the family. The family's 1956 Ford pickup was there. The keys are mentioned, I'm not sure, if at least one source said in the truck and another description I, I heard they were on the ground hmm. uh, fishing hmm. poles were leaning against a tree on the picnic table plates and cutlery were neatly laid out the open carton of milk was on the table there was a dishpan filled with cold water on the ground uh, inside the tent the family's clothes were folded and stacked on cots from what Ruth could see the only clothes that seemed to be missing were swimsuits I don't know how she really determined that but she knew they had their swimsuits and she didn't see any swimsuits mm-hmm. in all the family effects around the site they also found Belinda's purse and Melissa's diaper bag some finds were more unsettling on the ground they found richard's wallet with 23 dollars in it and his expensive watch now i other sources said these were found near the creek which makes me think that he put them there when they 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 were going swimming maybe right there another thing um, was that Ruth found one of belinda's blouses ripped in half another source quoted a officer a police officer saying that they found just half of the blouse and they assumed it was just a rag ripped up to use mm. like as a dish rag but you know again you know couldn't quite get precise information mm. of that and uh, there was no sign of any disruption or violent enc- encounter the family g- were gone with no clues as to what could have happened to them around 3 a.m though the next day early actually it turns out and one source specifies early in the wee hours of the morning uh the owner of the general store heard a scratching at the door he opened it to find the cowden family dog droopy outside oh. And so, um, poor Droopy, if Ruth, only he could talk. Ruth Grayson reported the family missing that evening. By later the next day, later there's some acknowledgement that maybe they should have started the search mm-hmm. right away. A massive search began. One of the biggest searches, <laughs> up to, at least up to that point, in right. order, I guess we call Kyra Harmon, involving local police, the Oregon State Police, the U.S. Forest Service personnel, a local motorcycle club, a citizens' band radio group. The state police led the investigation. It was on National Forest Land. 
planned something like this. They would have led the investigation. Anyways, within a few days, the National Guard joined the search. Eventually, the if FBI was consulted, but they did not get formally involved in this case because they determined that there was no evidence of a federal crime being committed. And that became kind of controversial later. After a few months, a number of people, say a couple hundred, signed a petition, submitted it to the governor, demanding that the FBI take over the investigation and that never happened. I think people don't understand necessarily the jurisdiction of Right, they don't understand. Eventually the search encompassed a 25 mile radius from the campsite. In the first news accounts, the state police claimed that they did not see signs of foul play and treated the case as a missing persons case. The first assumption assumed, redundant, that the family became lost in the maze of forested trails and logging roads. But Ruth Grayson saw it differently from the first. She thought the couple knew the area too well to become lost, especially considering they had two small children with them. She didn't think it likely that they'd go on some big, long trek. Can you remind me, what? how old are the kids? The, 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 a five-year-old boy and a five-month-old oh, baby okay, girl. Yeah. I always yeah. think it's weird when people go camping with, with, a, little, with an with, infant. Yeah. Yes. But they, yeah. you know, people camp I mean, I'm not they judging. It's yeah, just, yeah. yeah. She seems... Uh, Ruth Grayson seems to have felt that they, abduction seems to have been right away what she was thinking. Even the police, the scene did look wrong. The camp, it was spooky, said state trooper Lee Erickson. Even the milk was on the table. Mm. (laughs) Maybe he means spooky like it's like they were just transported Yeah, well, that's how it seemed. It was like, poof, they were gone. No sign of violence or anything. Uh, Nevertheless, the search was delayed. In quotes, maybe for a day, as Oregon State Police Detective Lieutenant Mark Kazar, who led the investigation, admitted later. After one of the biggest searches in Oregon, Oregon <laughs> history up to that point, <laughs> with ground searches, bloodhounds, they did use bloodhounds, and apparently they brought Droopy in to do some oh, of this. Oh, Droopy! And he was put to work. <laughs> his paw prints The pressure were, was on. Yeah, the, his paw prints were added to the case file, probably because they wanted, maybe they wanted to see where, can we find Droopy's prints somewhere around that oh, might help yeah. us? They used uh, helicopters and planes using infrared technology. They even had geologists come in to help them search the old mine shafts, the old uh, gold mine shafts. Uh. No sign of the missing family was found. The search officially came to an end on September 7th. Uh, investigation continued from there. Family and friends continued to search for four months afterwards and eventually built a reward fund of over $2,000, which was a lot more money in 1974 than it is now. Definitely. Um, It was unlikely the family would have left intentionally, which was one of the possible theories. Examination of the family's home showed that they intended to return. Fruit ripened on the windowsill. The freezer was stocked with food. They had just redecorated David's bedroom. Fall, which was beginning to, you know, uh, progress, was the best earning time in the logging industry. It seemed like it would have been a bad time for Richard to take off with his family somewhere. They had the usual debts a young family could find, no sign of financial distress, no sign of any drug activity or some sort of double life that would have prompted them to disappear or would have made them enemies in any way. I was going to say also there was $23 in his wallet. You take your cash with you when you yeah, take off, right, right? And right. her purse was still there? Her purse was there, and I didn't hear much. One said that her cigarettes were in the purse, and in and, and one news account it said there was a small amount of money in her purse. Right. Um, it's getting to look strange, said Squad Sergeant Ernest Walden of the Oregon State Police. This is about the strangest thing I've ever seen. It's not logical that a couple like that would take off with two young kids and leave all their belongings. If the National 
guard doesn't find anything about the only thing we can assume is that they were abducted. But if they were abducted, what was the motive? They were a family of modest means, not good targets for ransom. The police fielded hundreds of telephone tips and the usual claims of psychics. They continued to be hopeful that someone witnessed something important. The area had been traveled heavily on the Labor Day weekend with berry pickers, campers, and hunters. A couple of vehicles had been spotted in the area that day, but nothing seems to have come of those leads. Another possibly important tip was that Droopy had been seen on the afternoon of September 1st on Carberry Creek Road, about four miles upstream from the campsite. He was then seen later at 6.30 p.m., even further, a few miles up the road. He was looking for them. Had he been dropped off on the road by a vehicle at some point? As noted before, um, early the next day, very early the next day, he had returned, apparently on his own, to the Copper General store. Two weeks after the Cowdens disappeared, the police had nothing solid, a spokesman for the Oregon State Police uh, told the Statesman Journal on September 13th. Usually we come up with something. We can't find anything. Mm. Suddenly, on September 17th, <laughs> the Capitol Journal reported that the Oregon State Police were traveling to Eureka, California to interview a man who had been arrested as a suspect in a stabbing that occurred in Eureka on September 1st. This suspect was also possibly implicated in a death of a man named Leland Bergstrom, who had been shot to death on September 2nd and whose body had been found along a road in Selma, Oregon, near Grants Pass, which is a, another southern Oregon town and kind of a gateway into Redwood Country and as you're driving down into California. We drove through there. Yeah, yeah. In our trip. And as we have through yes. Medford and... And Eureka, yes, California. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this suspect... James Arthur Doan, was subsequently ruled out as a suspect in the Crowder and the Bergstrom case. However, police thought that whoever killed Bergstrom possibly might be implicated in the Cowden case. Bergstrom's car was found burning in a cemetery, and it was not until hours later that his body was found along a road eight miles away, killed by one gunshot to the back of the head. Mm. Months went by without any apparent progress in the case. In December, Richard Cowden's father committed suicide, apparently because of his despondency over the disappearance of his son and the young family. Um, he was ruled out as a possible suspect. Then in April of 1975, two gold prospectors from Forest Grove, actually much closer to Portland, were hiking along Carberry Creek looking for gold prospects. Clay climbed up a steep hillside about seven miles away from the uh, Cowden campsite. This hillside was adjacent, according to news reports, to something called the Old Sturgis Campground. No one ever explained more, but I'm assuming just an old campground that maybe was not used anymore mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm. And on that steep hillside, they came upon scattered skeletal remains. Uh. Dental records show that the remains were that of Richard Cowden, and it looked like he had been tied to a tree. Uh. Uh, the cause of death was not, they were not able to determine, they didn't you know it was just skeletal yeah. remains without any damage to the bones that would indicate something shortly thereafter about 100 to 200 feet away the remains of belinda and the two children were found in a shallow in quotes cave it really sounds more like a kind of rock formation they had been put in this rock formation and then the entrance had been blocked with yeah. rocks and brush the elements over the course of the winter had shifted the cover and investigators could actually look in and see the bodies this was how long after this is april okay um, so it was 1975 the yeah oh. so it was the following spring okay. so was it their bodies have been put in there y yes yeah okay. yes i was thinking at first like they had been put in there and it had been covered enough to suffocate 
ate them or something. No, it looks like they were. Um, they were, they were killed. Belinda and David were killed by gunshot wounds. Uh -huh. And five-month-old Melissa was killed by blunt force trauma to her uh -huh. head. One twenty-two caliber bullet was found at the scene. A murder-suicide was quickly ruled out as there was no sign of a weapon anywhere. Um, so the idea that Richard maybe killed them all and then... Tied himself, tied to, himself, to, himself to a tree. To a tree. <laughs> they didn't get into any detail. I haven't seen any police reports. And because this actually, I will reveal this right now this is still a non-solved case maybe they i don't know there are those they, i've assumed they're they're released but um mm. i haven't found any so so i don't know what there was at the site that indicate but i assume there might have even been remnants of a rope or the way the yeah but right the, his remains were quite scattered right. there was the, the body will decompose before the rope will yeah like yeah. The rope yeah. Will yeah so the rope there. could still yeah. be there but then they didn't say they just said it looked like he'd been tied to tree right. and his this Skeletal remains were quite scattered, and it looked, you know, animals have been at work, yeah. obviously. Now, the searchers had been through this area back in September during the initial search, but the hillside itself had not been searched. They described the searches where they were following roads and trails and doing air surveillance, but mm -hmm. the steep hillside was missed. However, one volunteer searcher claimed that he had searched that cave himself back in the fall and found mm. nothing there. Uh, to check his story, police led him to the quote-unquote cave. It doesn't really, like I said, sounds more like a kind of rock Indentation or something. Um, to see if it was the same one, and apparently he took them to it immediately. Um, now, this was, mm. I looked and looked in the newspaper accounts that I had available to me for this. I saw this in that blog, Strange Outdoors. And so I'm. they don't really source it, so, you know, I'm not sure how... It, if this is true, it's kind of interesting. Did whoever abduct them keep them somewhere for a while and then later right. bring their bodies well, that there? Guy's or, a killer. But they, but the police pretty much are uh, basing it, uh, are assuming that they actually were killed. Or the this. guy just said that and he hadn't really, and he may have known where the cave nope. was anyway because yeah. he lives. That's good. That's there. a good point. Yeah, you know, he, he may have just said it to either make himself sound important, right. or to make it, and then they're like, okay, show us. So he yeah. had to you're, show. You're him. absolutely right. He's, right. he's yeah. from. Um, he wasn't from the immediate vicinity well, he was from um grant's past well put it this um, way he which is a ways away but it he, would be hard if he had just seen it once during a search to immediately take exactly yeah, yeah. So, that's a good explanation so it might yeah. be because it's all a lot of these you have to not take as 100 percent credible everything people right, say right, exactly after the so that's exactly. one where i was like really yeah. and then another possibility is it really was another cave he searched but there are a number of things like it around right and and once he heard the news accounts he just assumed that oh that's the cave that i searched and, yeah, and, and it wasn't really the one he didn't right. he was just mistaken and another possibility and this came up in that paul holes podcast i talked about last time police in one case said well he took us immediately to the site blah 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 so obviously but what it turns out is the police gave clues without exactly. really realizing Realizing. about where yeah, right, the site right, was. Right, right. So they helped with, you know, yeah. either deliberately or undeliberately. It wasn't just like, okay, here you go, show us where right, it is. Right, right. And exactly. you really don't know all these years later what, what really the context happened. was. Yeah. Other possible witnesses came to light around this time. A young couple with two young children from California um, head camp nearby. Now, this is, again, where it's the location of where they were camping was not clear. I went over and over the different news accounts. Was it the Carberry Creek site where the Cowdens had been camping and disappeared from? Or was it the old, the old campground adjacent to where their bodies were found about ah. seven miles away? And and I kept, you know, it's it was like even within one news story, it wasn't clear which one. But, um, but anyways, mm -hmm. on the day, the September 1st, the day the Cowdens disappeared, they were on a walk when they saw a truck 
parked nearby. Inside it were uh, two men and a woman. They said the people in the truck seemed to be waiting for them to leave, and it made this California family nervous, and they the Californians quickly moved on. But apparently nothing came of this lead either. Mm. Ultimately, the Oregon State Police believed that after Richard and David's returning with the milk on September 1st, the family had gone swimming, and then probably in late morning had been abducted, probably at gunpoint by someone they did not know. The abductor drove them up Carberry Creek Road in his vehicle, probably letting Droopy out along the way. Mm. Coming to the old Sturgis campground, he forced them up the hill, tied, or had Belinda tie Richard mm-hmm. to the tree, killed them and hid Belinda and the children's body in the cave-slash-rock formation. Richard's body uh, would not have fit, and apparently he was just left, and I, I'm, I'm saying possibly with some brush cover. Um, with no solid leads and no physical evidence leading them to a solid suspect, the investigation seemed to be at a standstill. On the morning of June 2nd, 1980, Margie Hunter of Tigard, Oregon, set out for the day. She recently had been laid off from her job at Metalcraft and was several months pregnant. She needed to pick up her last paycheck at Metalcraft and also look for a new job. After running her errands and visiting a friend, Maggie was on Route 99 West, which goes along the Willamette River, uh, south of Portland, um, late in the day when her car broke down. She got out of her car to look for a phone booth and was joined by a male hitchhiker as a looming thunderstorm began to hail on them and rain on them. They both tried to run for the nearest shelter. Suddenly, a driver in a blue Honda came up and offered them both a ride. Margie thought he looked like someone who was a co-worker of hers at Metalcraft. Not anyone she knew, but just someone she remembered seeing around. They both, both she and the hitchhiker, got in. Um, she asked to be left off at the nearest phone booth. The driver did leave her off at the next phone booth they saw and drove off with the hitchhiker saying he, was, he would leave, you know, bring the hitchhiker home, wherever his destination was. Margie tried to call her mother and others for help, but no one was around. So she decided to start walking for home, which really wasn't that far. It was still raining hard when the driver in the blue Honda pulled up again and offered to drive her home. Thinking that he was this co-worker who she recognized and reassured by her prior experience with him, she got in the car. When he passed the turn to her house and then made for the on-rep to Interstate 5, she realized she was in trouble. The, The driver began threatening her with a knife. Finally, he stopped at a large grassy treed area right off I-205 near the conjunction of I-5 and sexually assaulted her, although he was unable to complete penetration, which maybe angered him. He told her to get dressed. When she began to do so, he attacked her from behind, attempted to strangle her. Despite her pleas for her unborn baby, he finally attacked her with a knife. Mm. She became unconscious. Um, He dragged her into a thicket of blackberries to hide her body, clearly believing he had killed her. Margie regained consciousness and was able to drag herself to an area near the highway where the grass was cut and cars could see her. She tried to wave down a car, and finally someone stopped and gave her aid and brought her to the hospital, and the police were called and everything. She had severe bruising and swelling around her neck, a stab wound at the base of her skull, and deep stab and slashing wounds on her right wrist and left ankle. She was able to give a detailed description of her attacker and his car, and she was certain he was someone she who worked at Metalcraft. She said she and the attacker had actually discussed the work, their workplace. Like, and Anne Rule mentions this at this part in her chapter on this case that she said clearly since he intended to kill her from the start because right. here's someone who clearly he knew long before he attacked her that yeah, she that could she, knew she, she knew who he was and could identify him an all points bulletin went out on the blue honda with a description of the driver at 8 p.m that evening an oregon state policeman 
pulled over a car fulfilling that description. After approaching the driver, the trooper immediately recognized the driver, Dwayne Lee Little. Dwayne Lee Little had long been acquainted with Oregon law enforcement. In 1966, at the age of 17, he was convicted of the 1964 rape and murder of 15-year-old Orla Ray Phipps, a Thurston High School student in Springfield, Oregon. He was paroled in May 1974, Ugh. despite the Oregon State Police strongly arguing against it. Um, he was released on the recommendation of the psychiatrist, the examining wow. psychiatrist, oh, who said right. in his report, quote, I feel really good about this young man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a little's parole officer apparently also in the subsequent years was going to be a big supporter of him um, mm-hmm. and rec- uh, constantly recommend leniency and everything. At Christmas time in 1974, remember this is months and months later after the Cowdens mm-hmm. disappeared, but before their bodies were found, little's girlfriend noticed that Little had a Marlin 22 rifle in his possession, which was a violation of his parole. She notified the police. And her. by early January, Little's parole had been revoked, um, and he was put in prison again. Then he was released on parole yet again in 1977. Mm. Um, he did, in fact, in the months before Margie Hunter was um, attacked, he did, in fact, work for a while at Metalcraft. Oh. Little was, was arrested, tried, and convicted for sexual assault and attempted murder of Margie Hunter and began serving three consecutive life terms for his crimes because he had, you know, raped and murdered before, lo and behold. Mm, Then in November of that year, a fellow inmate of Little's, Floyd Fosberg, who was a lifer with murder and bank robbery convictions, Mm. claimed that Little had confessed to him that he was the killer of the Cowden family. Fosberg also, he had many, many things he had heard in prison. He also revealed a major escape plan of which Little was supposedly a part, which were 16 other inmates were had planned this big escape and then he took I don't know how this was allowed he took I mean he was currently an inmate right and he took reporters on a tour like of the state penitentiary showing them like this cache of their escape tools hmm. and you know these news articles are describing like how is this the allowed to yeah it was a different time as much as some of his claims appeared to be fantastical Fosberg did have a track record that it made authorities take notice. In 1979, Fosberg claimed that another fellow inmate named Richard Godwin had confessed to him to kidnapping and killing a five-year-old girl named Andrea Tolentino, who had disappeared near Eugene in 1976. Fosberg was able to lead police to her remains using the directions he said Godwin had given him. When God, now they might say, well, maybe it was Fosberg, but I think he would, had already been serving yeah, when she disappeared. Right. But also Godwin's trailer where he lived was searched. And they found Andrea's skull being used uh, as a candle holder. Oh! Godwin pled guilty and began serving a life sentence. However, uh, the day after Fosberg makes all these claims, now the whole thing with Godwin had worked out. That was back in 1979, but his he's making these claims in 1980, shortly after Little's convicted of okay. the attempted murder. I'm, the day after he makes this big thing, like, Little, confess to me, he's the one who killed the Cowdens. He admitted... That his claims were false. Yeah, he, he probably got so much attention and he had so much fun with the other thing. Yeah, he yeah. said, I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know why. Maybe they just, there were all kinds of implausibilities. That's boring in, but I mean, in prison. Yeah. yeah. The tale of a plan perusing escape was not substantiated. He had implicated four other inmates in murders they clearly had not committed. I'm sure he didn't have many friends there. One other, one other claim of his was that Godwin, the guy who apparently did really kill this poor little five-year-old, had confessed to killing Kay Turner of Eugene in 1978 at, at Camp Sherman. 
And as we now know, John Aykroyd in the early 90s was convicted of that killing see that episode uh, on the that Oregon Highway 20. 60. Episode ah, 60. Yes. Yeah, and I talked a lot about that. That person. was a good one. Uh, and, th- and then even before John Aykroyd was convicted and everything, there were people who thought that Kate Turner might have been one of Ted Bundy's mm. victims, you know. Yeah. But, however, all this publicity and everything brought out the revelation from law enforcement that Dwayne Lee Little had in fact been a strong suspect in the Cowden case all the way back in the early, uh-huh. in, the early in the original investigation. After his release on parole in May of 1974, Little was living with his parents just a few miles north of Carberry Creek in the town uh-huh. of Rush. The Oregon State Police were well aware of his history and put him in their sights as soon as it became apparent that the Cowdens were likely abducted. Retired Oregon State Police Detective Richard Davis said that they found out that Little had driven a load of steel to Crescent City in Northern California, which is, you know, really just a a several hours drive, the day before the Cowdens disappeared. One of his likely return routes to his parents' place would have taken him right along Carberry Creek Road, Mm. past the campsite. Um, So they think it was very likely he was coming back home that day, September 1st. He was spotted in a local restaurant around noon that day. So they know he was back in the area that day. Now, that doesn't quite fit with the timeline that they're abducted in late morning. But, you know, they could have been abducted any time between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. that day. Um, An elderly couple said later that afternoon they had seen a car with two men and and one woman who was sitting between them, the woman was crying. And this seems kind of tenuous to me. They couldn't describe the vehicle or anything. Mm. More intriguingly, Little's parents' truck matched the description of the truck spotted by the, that California mm-hmm. family. Ah. Um, that that's truck where they saw, you know, that they saw around 5 p.m. that day that made them nervous. The police believed that the people in the truck were Little and his parents who were sitting there waiting for the California visitors to hmm. leave. The truck fit the description that the California couple gave, the truck that the Little's parents... Although Little and his parents denied being in the vicinity on September 2nd, Little and his parents had visited and signed the guest book of a nearby miner's cabin. I don't know why they would do Oregon that. State Police also had documentation that Little's mother had bought a Marlin 22 rifle at least a year before the crime. Despite their suspicions, Oregon State Police had no solid evidence to link Little to the crime. Then they find out that he's in a possession of a firearm. He's on parole. They searched the Little's home, the parents where he was staying. They didn't find the rifle, but they did find a spring loader made to fit a Marlin 22. Hmm. And on that evidence, they charged Little with possession of a firearm as a felon. They tried to make a deal with Little that if he was willing to be questioned about the Cowden's mur- murders during the lie detector test, they would waive the firearms charge he would not make a deal. He refused. Mm-hmm. Um, his parole was revoked. He went back to prison. Years later, one of Little's fellow inmates told Detective Davis that Little would never talk. Uh, Davis, the detective's experience with the case, led him to create the multi-agency major crime units in Jackson County in the 1980s. Dwayne mm-hmm. Little has never discussed his crimes or admitted to any of the crimes he is suspected of committing. He is still serving a life sentence at Oregon State Penitentiary. The Cowden family murder case remains unsolved. Mm-hmm. So, would you like me to talk a bit yes. about another crime that has some interesting yes. parallels? So, uh, there are some interesting parallels to this case and some interesting weird connections as well. This case got a lot more publicity, uh, so I have to just tell you I haven't done nearly as much primary research. My Sorry. main source of information is a book 
by a survivor of Ooh. this incident. It's called A Strange Piece of Paradise, published in 2006 by Terry Gents. My favorite murder may have... This I case think. has been picked up by a lot of the big podcasts. Right. So I don't need to go in, and I don't intend to go into as much okay. detail. And I do have some issues with the book, which I'll get into. But it's just intriguing because there's some mm-hmm. parallels. Yes. On June 22nd, 1977... Yale roommates Terry Gents and Shana Weiss. This is a pseudonym that Gents uses, by the way. Um, and in Wikipedia, you can find her So real Terry name. Gents is the real name, but her yes. friend is a pseudonym. Yeah, and okay. well, this friend, as you'll see, didn't want to be involved in yes. any of this. Yeah. Uh, it is possible to find her real name, and I right. didn't feel yes. any need to reveal That's it. That's all right. They were in the seventh day of their cross-country biking trip. Inspired by the bicentennial creation of the Bike Centennial Trans-American <laughs> Trail, which was the first cross-country biking route uh, uh, created sounds exhausting. in the United yeah. States, they they had taken a bus from Chicago, where gents grew up, uh, to Astoria. So they they drove by bus, and this is where like the to Wikipedia, Astoria, Oregon, or to Astoria, Oregon, or they didn't drive up. So they were rode by bus, and, and Wikipedia says they they had biked across country and then were on their way back. No, they took a bus out to Astoria. Gents particularly was a pretty active bicyclists, but neither of them were experienced long distance. And so they were going to go start an Astoria on the West Coast yeah, and make their way east. Right. Okay. Um, and on the bus ride, they met up with a, a young couple, Mark and Kathy Rettenbach. I'm not sure if that's a pseudonym or not. I don't know how many pseudonyms Jens used in her mm. book. So that she met this nice young couple who are very experienced cross-country bikers. There is a kind of odd lack of preparation, but maybe given it was the mid to late 70s, that was more... They didn't do training runs and everything back in Connecticut. And yeah. Terry Jens, she did a lot of research on the bikes they should have, and they bought the bikes and everything. She did say, well, you know, maybe we should try like a really long distance ride you know before we set off mm. and they did this long distance ride one weekend in Connecticut and stopped at a campground where there were quite a few families and stuff camping and as they were setting up their tent people were always remarking you two girls alone you know it was a different era yeah. they got always got a lot of commentary and kind of people being a bit perplexed that you you gals all on your own you mm-hmm. two of you girls you know breaking all on your own you're camping something made them I don't know if it was Terry or her friend Shana, uh, it may have been Terry who suggested, you know, maybe it might be good kind of better security if we put the opening of our tent towards the river or creek at the campground um, instead of facing out where all the other tents are facing out. Now, is this in Astoria or in Connecticut? No, this is in Connecticut. This is their trial run. Right, okay, yeah. In other words, kind of throwing someone off. If somebody wanted to try to get into their tent, they would have had to come around. They'd they'd try. They'd try it. And in fact, in the middle of the night, they wake up to hear someone like scrabbling around outside that side of the tent. Mm. Shana screams, leave us alone. Whoever it was went away and they weren't bothered the rest of the night. But it seems to be a rather foreboding. I I know. I wouldn't. It was like that time with us with the bear. They don't have a car. Right, right. Like with the bear in Vermont. You know, we yelled at him too. Yeah, right. So they start out on their bikes in Astoria, going along with this young couple who are much more experienced bikers than them. By the seventh day, they're riding east on Highway 126. They've just traversed the Cascade Mountains over the brutal Mackenzie Pass. And we're riding down where there's the town of Sisters is right there. And they were riding down into the high desert of some Central Oregon. Uh, they agreed that Mark and Kathy would go on ahead of them to the town of Mitchell, which is 66 miles east um, on Highway 26 of Redmond, Oregon. Terry and Shana hoped to catch up with them later that evening. They had been kind of falling behind. Yeah. As they continued on their way, they were starting to fear that if they tried to get to Mitchell, which was way over on the other side of Redmond, it would get dark. And they didn't mm-hmm. want to be driving along the highway in the dark. So 
Terry looks in her bike centennial guide, <laughs> and it says that there's this campground, Klein Falls State Park, uh, west of Redmond. So they're going to get there before they get to the town mm-hmm. of Redmond. And they oh yeah, I always got west and east mixed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. So they decide they'll stop there, okay. camp for the night, set out early, and hopefully meet up with the, you know catch up with their friends the next day. Upon getting to the park, the women realized the site was not as it had been described in the guide. It lay down an embankment from the highway and was along the Deschutes River. It was a smallish picnic and fishing spot with one looped road going through it, picnic tables, and a set of restrooms. There was a walking trail to the falls, um, which was kind of on a viewpoint. Cherry describes it as looking disquietingly desolate. If you look on the Google reviews now, people describe it as a lovely shaded spot on the river, but the foliage has grown in a lot since 1977, apparently. So maybe it's much more inviting now than it was dead. But most importantly, signs indicated that no overnight camping was allowed. Mm. As Terry said, at that point, a crucial decision was made. Shayna, who is not as strong a biker as Terry, and she had been lagging behind Terry, you know, and Terry, Terry almost was sort of feeling at that point that she could have kind of kept up with Mark and Kathy, but Shayna was, but she's the one who, who wanted to push on and try to meet up with her friends that night. But Terry, thinking of how Shayna had struggled to keep up, feared night falling on the highway before they could get mm. to Mitchell. She pushed for staying overnight yeah. at Klein Falls, despite the no camping sign. They drove in and began to set up. They chose a spot past the restrooms near the river. The park held a number of day trippers and picnickers, families. Um, the women had casual conversations with a number of people. Again, people surprised at you know these girls making such a biking trip on their own. Mm. Teenagers were cruising around, and there were lovers' Ugh. lane types parked. Um, it got dark. Uh, th- the park started to empty out. Uh, there were still some teenagers and everything around. But eventually, by 10.30 or so, Terry says that both she- they were alone in the park. She does say that both she and Shayna felt that they had- were being watched mm. throughout the whole, like, you know, the whole time. Ew. And they just put it down to they were tired, and maybe they were kind of mm. thinking things. You should read the gift. Yeah, I know, I know. There were a number of these Always kind follow of instinct. your instincts. Night fell. The women apparently were alone in the park, as I said. Shana went to sleep in the tent. Terry spent a little time sitting outside the tent looking at the stars. Then she went. Later that night, probably about 11.30 p.m., Terry w- wakes from her sleep to hear the sound of a motor vehicle revving. She assumes it's partying teenagers who showed up at the park. And apparently this was a big teenage party spot. Suddenly she hears a vehicle approaching. She's, you know, they're in the tent. And she suddenly feels a massive weight roll onto her. She realizes that she's pinned under the wheels of what seemed to her to be a truck of some kind. She then hears someone get out of the truck. One of the things she notes is how terrifying it was that that whoever was getting out of the truck made no noise. Everything was silent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she said, no, this is no, like, drunken teenager no. making it. Right. You know, it's the, some silent person climbs down from the truck. She hears Shayna screams a bit of a distance away, leave us alone. The footsteps go in that direction. And Terry heard seven sickening thuds of something being hit. Uh. Then the footsteps approached her. No! And, you know, she's totally pinned under, Uh, she says she just feels this massive weight uh, on her. And she was hit several times with what she later believed was a hatchet, sometimes called hatchet or axe interchangeably. She remembers flailing about as she was hit. Then she heard the person get back in the truck. The truck backs off of her. A moment later, she hears someone get out of the truck again and approach her. Ah. 
She looked up and she talks about seeing, but there's no mention of headlights or anything. So is this in the star and moonlight? I mean, this is high desert. It's very clear. Yeah, it if could it's, be. It's very, very clear enough star, light, and moonlight. So I'm not sure. I, I looked over and over her account to see were his headlights on or not. I get the sense her headlights, his headlights were off. Um, and so maybe it was just whatever ambient light from the moon and the stars. Mm-hmm. Um, she looks up to see someone like astride her she's of course on the ground and what she could see were these very slick looking cowboy boots a physique of someone who was maybe not terribly tall or bulky but very fit tightly fitting very very meticulously like pressed jeans Mm, cowboy type jeans and a (laughs) shirt that was very she just said everything she, she has this overwhelming image of a very, very meticulously, neatly dressed mm. cowboy. And then as she went up, she, his, like, his face and head were like in shadow. Oh, yeah. uh, later, when she went back in the 90s and was trying to uncover all kinds of stuff about that, someone who knew who this guy possibly could have been said, I bet they were wearing a cowboy hat. And the hat... Was mm. in, yeah, his head was in shadow from the right. hat. And then she sees, he's he's lowering this hatchet slowly down towards her chest. She grabs it in her hands. Ah. And she says, take anything, but leave us alone. Please leave us alone. She, he then withdrew the axe or hatchet, whatever you want to call it. A hatchet is a small axe. I, I, I think it was a hatchet because it was not big, but people right. use the terms right. interchangeably. He then walked to the truck and drove away. She tries to move. She tries to scramble, and her arms don't seem to work pot- uh. well. Her blood is everywhere. She is sort of entangled in uh. the remnants of the tent. She found in the, like, the pocket of the tent where you could put things, she found her contact lenses and she said she used the blood on her hands to like put them in her eyes and then blinked the blood away and she's looking for (laughs) Shayna she's looking for Shayna and she finds Shayna down near the riverbank moaning semi-conscious she didn't seem to be injured until she felt under her head and and felt really bad wounds on her head she said then she manages to find a flashlight she runs towards the little loop park road and lo and behold, their headlights coming down. And she even thinks this could be the guy who attacked yeah, us. That's what I but was she saying. Said, yeah. She's like, yeah, what are you going right, to do? And so she approaches it. It's another truck, and it stops, and she sees this teenage boy and the teenage girl like looking like, oh my God. And they stopped and they helped them, uh, managed to go and get Shayna, who they weren't even sure was still alive. But then she started moaning. They put her in the cab of the truck. Terry insisted that they get all their stuff, the bloody tent and everything, and throw it in the back of the truck. And she got in the back of the truck. and, And they said, later told her, many years later, that she was like running around and they didn't even realize how badly she was injured God. because it was probably adrenaline. But I she know. said she could tell her arms weren't moving properly and oh, everything. God. So they drive to a clinic in Redmond. I think they get there by about midnight. They're later transported to a larger hospital in Bend. And Mark and Kathy had waited for them in Mitchell that night. Early in the morning, though, before they even set off to start their ride, the Oregon State Police looked for them because I think Terry was conscious throughout this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So she told they were questioning her about what might have happened in her hospital bed. And she was saying, well, we were we were riding with this couple and they thought, well, maybe they're potential witnesses. Maybe they saw something. So they were, it was like 5 a.m., yeah. you know, and these Oregon State Police, oh, they're, they're camped in Mitchell and they kind of... Well, they also like to show up early. Just yeah, and so they, so they went back. Suspect. They yes. went back and visited Terry and Shana in the hospital. And then they continued their ride as far... Their original destination was Pueblo, Colorado. And that 
that's you know ultimately many weeks later what they ended up doing. Terry's injuries were both her arms were broken, one, oh. leg, one leg was broken, her collarbone oh was broken, and several ribs. One of her lungs was crushed. Oh, um, there were deep cuts uh, from the hatchet in her forearm. Shayna had only head wounds. But they were severe. After regaining consciousness, she could not see at all. Over several Aww. months, she did regain some of her sight, but never fully regained her sight, and she had no memory at oh, all I'm sure of she the attack. Yeah. Afterwards, you know, these are girls from her way, right? So they go home, you know, they can kind of continue on their lives, and some weird coincidence, the parents of both women, who just happened to be roommates at Yale, both their, their fathers got job assignments of some kinds in Moscow. So they both were in Moscow. Terry kind of tried to keep up the friendship, but they there was this divide. Oh, Shana yeah. did not want to hear anything mm. about this. You she didn't remember anything her. about it. She, you know, obviously she was focused on her own recovery right. and everything. And um, Terry wanted to talk more about it, but... Um, so they kind of, things go along. She talks a lot about, you know, her own recovery. And she got, she would use the story as a way to kind of, you know, it, w- it became almost a kind of weird story she would tell. And she had kind of distanced herself from it. But she started to have issues. And she was diagnosed with PTSD mm. by the early 90s. And that I prompted her so. to go back to Central Oregon and really, like, start, like, what actually, we never heard what happened with the investigation. You know, obviously no one was ever caught. Or, or we hope we would have heard. You know, what was going on with the people in the town? Um, who could this have been? So she goes back and she wants to start investigating basically what happened. And she's helped by a couple in Portland, Oregon. Their, their daughter disappeared many years before. And they started an organization to help people who had loved ones involved in unsolved crimes. And this couple really helped her out a lot. And as she says in her book, this investigation was more than a crime fighting exercise. It was a voyage of discovery, a ritual of imposing the present on the past to regain my will, an odyssey to find the truth of the living past. Um, I have to say, you know, this is obviously an extremely traumatic event and somebody has the right to write about it however they want. She's a professional writer. She was a poet. I had to kind of stop reading the book about half way through because it is really long. I th- I say it's it's well written but very overwritten. Was it self-published? No. Oh no, no, no. It it was published. I don't know who the publisher What's is, but the it name was of the book? I think it did very well. It's called, called she said what a, a little piece of a strange like piece of paradise, okay, thank I think. You. I first heard about this case when she published the book, it was getting a lot of reviews, and she came to Portland, Oregon, and was giving interviews, and I read about it in the paper. I'd never heard about this case until then. She got a lot of national coverage. So she goes back throughout the 90s. She goes back to Central Oregon and Redmond a number of times, interviewing locals, the witnesses, like the, the people who rescued her, yes. all these things, to kind of see if she could figure out. she'd want to meet them anyway. This is what she finds. And as I said, I just tried to boil it down. There's a lot of philosophizing. Yeah. There's like multiple page descriptions of the desert and the juniper and the, and then she'll she talk. She needed an editor. She talked about her meetings with people and it's every single what they were wearing, what they were eating, yeah. you know. So uh, she says she finds, one of the things she finds is that in 1977 in Oregon, attempted murder had a three-year statute of limitations. Oh my God. Uh, later it was changed. In fact, I think she gets involved in a group who tries to Jesus. change it. And it is now, uh, now there's no limit on right. attempted Thank murder God. in Oregon. Yeah. Uh, so even if she ever finds who her attacker could have been, he can't be prosecuted. The investigation uh, petered out over several months and was never solved. Mm-hmm. Um, after a big struggle, she was able to get the basic case file mm. from the Oregon State Police, 
which consisted only of their, the notes from their investigators and everything, and was only about 30 pages long. Mm. She finds out that all the physical evidence that had been kept by the investigators, such as the tent, the clothes the girls were wearing, the crime scene photos, had been lost somehow. Uh Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. They did get a few things back in the aftermath, like she reclaimed her bike and got it fixed. And she said there was almost a kind of thing like, I'm not going to give up this bike just because it was, it of course was all battered because the truck had hit it. Yeah. Uh-huh. She also found as she began to interview people that the incident had made a huge impression on the people in Redmond and many, many of them were very ashamed that it had happened in their community and that no conclusion was ever, oh, well, that, that it was never concluded or resolved. Some of them seemed to almost be, have been traumatized by it, particularly uh-huh. the ones um, like the young couple, I bet. Who, of course were no longer a couple, who she interviewed, the, the teenage yeah. right. Kids who found them, it was clear that they, in fact, were actually suffering from some of the symptoms of PTSD. She said she, people immediately knew. She, all, she would introduce herself as, I'm one of those girls who was attacked at Klein Falls. And people immediately knew, even younger people. 20 years she, later. Yeah, yeah, almost 20 years later. Um, you know, 15 at least years later. She does also find out that the Oregon State Police did have a suspect at the time. Guess who? Richard Godwin. Ah. The best killer five-year-old. Andrea, uh, the one with the skull candle His, the, tra- the trailer where he lived was actually pretty, quite nearby. Uh, he had a lot of family in the area. The Oregon State Police had heard that he was abusing his teenage niece, and uh, she apparently, supposedly, had been among the visitors at uh, Klein Falls Park that evening, and some informants told Oregon State Police that Godwin was jealous that his niece had a boyfriend and thought that... Uh, whoever was in that tent oh, was his niece with her boyfriend, and she. Okay. Had but uh, he was never formally accused or indicted. But then, when Terry is shown pictures of him and descriptions of him, he was this kind of slovenly. Yeah, yeah she said this guy him. does not look at all like what I remember from what I saw of my attacker. Uh-huh. Um, and then she does talk to that niece at one point, and this girl, you know, this guy is not, you know in prison for life for killing a five-year-old and she said she said actually she said i got along okay with my uncle bob i always thought he was pretty nice except when i was little he did try to put the move up moves on me once and i just really avoided him after that i'm like oh my god what a family this must have been (laughs) she said though that although she thinks she may have been in that park earlier in the evening with a bunch of teenage friends she's quite sure he was not there right. anywhere around the vicinity mm-hmm. when that attack happened. So, um, so it's like how one of those stories gets... Yeah, yeah. so more story. shockingly to Terry, there was another person that many, many people in Redmond suspected was the perpetrator nearly from the first, and they told her that, who this guy was. And multiple people she talked to thought this guy, and they thought in the aftermath of the attack, they oh, said, wow. I bet it was this guy. His name, his real name, she calls him Dirk something or other in the book um i'll use his real name um dick dam richard dam he was only 17 at the time but already had a long-standing reputation for being quick to anger and being very violent with a distinct sadistic streak Mm. like attacking like hurting animals and stuff like that beating up on girlfriends and everything he was handsome and charming always able to attract friends and girlfriends did he iron his jeans um he was the kind of real ranch hands that she talked to talked about him as a drugstore cowboy yeah they said Ah. there were these guys who were like the drugstore cowboys who they might even had done some ranch work i think his parents owned like a ranch but they didn't have to really do a lot of work on the ranch and they dressed as cowboys and were very neat and Mm. he said he was always meticulously neatly Mm -hmm. dressed in her descriptions of him as an adult 
Joe, he looks like he might be a little bigger, like he's about six feet. And but she was like, she was well, also she realized, like, she realized that as a seventeen-year-old boy, he likely might have grown more. Yeah, after oh, yeah, that. yeah. There is some documentation that he was questioned by local police. Mm. The Redmond Police and De- Deschutes County uh, Sheriff's Office were involved, and I think it was the county sheriff deputies that first arrived on the scene of mm. the crime. So you saw notes that indicated that two polygraphs were taken. I wonder if they looked at his. Tr- uh, the f- yeah. damage. The first uh, the first polygraph was apparently inconclusive. The second uh, indicated deception. Then the authorities found out that he was under the influence of meth at the time he took the exams. <laughs> and so they didn't retake them, but what they did is they had a lab in Salem analyze both tests, and the analyzers in Salem, which is the state capital, believed that dam showed deception in both tests. Now, the interesting thing about all this is that Nowhere in the Oregon State Police crime report that she has is this guy mentioned anywhere. So any information she's getting about him, she talked to local police and sheriff department guys who said, we all thought this is the guy who did it. Right. And she's like, then why the Oregon State Police were, he said, any information we gave to the Oregon State Police, they were running the investigation. Right. She couldn't find any mention. And then she even talked to some of the Oregon State Police investigators who had worked on the case and they said they had no knowledge of this guy. And and can I just say too, it's a little irritating, maybe all their notes aren't there and everything, that they would rely, first of all, what I know about polygraphs if somebody's on drugs, you throw out. But right, of course, right. they just use them to manipulate right, people right. anyway. They or they wanna, were poorly administered right, tests. And right. They, but they want to rely on the lazy way of do, doing a polygraph. Will, right, right, the red right. light will go on if he's lying or whatever. Uh, yeah. Instead of, I would think if somebody, if an investigator who knew his thing investigated that truck, if it ran over the tent and the bicycles right, right. and everything there, there would be, be evidence on, sign on his truck. Yeah, and there was no evidence that that was done sure that... one of the most interesting and you can call this hearsay or whatever but yeah. the most kind of involved information she gets is richard dam's girlfriend of the time jane fraley she was only about 15 at the time her parents did not like the fact that she was going out with this mm. guy when she later talks to terry jensen in the 90s she says yeah or, you know he would hit me and stuff it was an abusive relationship the day of the attack they had gone swimming with some friends richard dam had this pickup truck it was a big blue pickup truck and uh, they were diving into the lake from a big handmade wooden toolbox he had that was like the width of the truck bed yeah she said there was always a hatchet in there Mm. um, that he used it had a wooden handle on it carved dd she's good she is a good detective like all kinds of things she heard she basically put down as urban legend yeah all kinds of people told me yeah he had this hatchet with dd on it and then they found it in the river you know like he'd thrown it in there and she's like she just figured it was just urban legend but uh that jane is saying he did have a hatchet with his initials carved in it and he you know said he used it to do ranch work and sometimes chop coyotes Uh, And then she doesn't remember that they had any fight or anything, though she said they fought constantly. But he left her off at her parents about 10, and and she lived just a few miles from the park, and he, he, you know... And this is the night of the... The night of the attack. His parents live a few miles in a different direction from the park as well. The next day, she's working in Terrebonne, which is a little town near Bend, in seed fields. Uh, She's got a summer job harvesting. um, There's a lot of um, plant seed production um, in Central Oregon. And driving there to work, she hears about the attack on the radio. And then she's working in the fields. This guy, her boyfriend, Richard Dam, shows up drunk. Hmm. She thinks he probably had been ingesting something else as well. And he comes over and starts um, kind of 
being belligerent and everything and like yelling at her and yelling at the other kids who was working with her she somehow when he was yelling at some other kids went to the truck and she found a half open bottle of vodka and she dumped it out and replaced it with water kind of trying to Mm -hmm. you know he comes over sees what she's done he's Calls her out of the truck and starts beating and wailing oh, on her. And when two young girls who are younger than her try to run over and help her, he turns around and tells the girls that he will kill them if they do anything. And she later talks to those girls, too. And they said they could still remember the look on his eyes. Ugh. Finally, the lady who was the work manager shows up with a gun, gets Jane, <laughs> puts her in the truck. The other kids pile into another truck and try to run off. And he's screaming and yelling. Wow. Um, and apparently trying to hang on to the truck where his girlfriend is as the oh, work manager Jesus. is trying to drive her away. She's brought to the hospital. Um, Jane, Janie says, you know, there are pictures of me with black eyes and everything. Um, but what she says is that she is out of the hospital the next day. He's in jail. He was picked up and put in jail for the attack. Her parents. The attack on her. her yeah, and her. And her. Yeah. She says something's niggling at her. She She's like, where did he go after he left me off the night before? Yeah. And she had heard that the police were looking at tire tracks, and she knew his truck had very distinctive. There was um, a very detailed description of the tire tread marks. They saw the tire tread marks from the truck. The first two front ones were bald, and they were mismatched. They were a different brand. You know, there so there was a kind right. of distinct track right. marks. And she said, "Boy, that sounds kind of like the tires he has." She went there, and she claims now again. I'm like, if she did do this, was it could have been right? Like the day at, or two after? I mean, wasn't it marked off as a crime scene maybe not maybe though. not it doesn't um, you know <laughs> they, they, i don't know if she ever found out how did they just let people back in the park you know after they it their initial me. um she said she went there and she saw the tire tracks and she was convinced it was him she said another thing she noticed about his truck the day after when he had come and was she, when she goes to the truck to dump out the vodka she notices that big toolbox is gone Oh. And she wondered what could have, he always had that toolbox. Now she didn't say she noticed anything else about how the truck looked. right. But I'm thinking the undercarriage that you know something investigators would look at if they know. care. But that was this is the kind of the most telling kind of story. But again, if they, all kinds of things that would have to be corroborated. Many many people in Redmond tell gents that in the aftermath of the client the text on her and her friend, he was acting in all kinds of suspicious ways. One one guy who was in a Bible study with him, he said, oh, he suddenly <laughs> seemed to find God, and he showed up at our Bible study. Right. And he started talking about that incident and, you know, kind of what if somebody had done it and they were, the reason they did it was black. And it, they, he, the guy said he just got the feeling that, is he like confessing to me, you know, yeah. but no one else mm. in the group really remembered any of that. And, oh, you know, but she get she multiple, multiple, multiple people thought this guy right. was the guy. And she's like, so why didn't you go, all go to the police or something? But so many of the, the local police thought he was like The kids, the, pe- the, the people probably said, well, the police are handling it, and they're obviously... Right, right. They, said they, they said, well, the police must be on it. And right. in fact, Janie and her parents are sure they talked to police. Terry Gents can't ever really conclusively determine if it was local police or state police. Mm-hmm. Uh, the father says, I think it was guy, the sheriff's department. Janie says, you know, I thought it was the old state police building where I was interviewed and no one is really clear but all she knows is that there's no documentation Mm. of it in the Oregon State Police report. One other thing was the young couple who rescued her. She tracks both of them down. Of course they're no longer together. They both have somewhat differing memories of the night and their reports 
the night of, you know, what they said that are in the Oregon State Police report were a little bit different, but not in ways. And one of the things that happened that they all three remembered was as they were loading up stuff into their truck to take them to the hospital, they saw headlights coming down. Remember, like the, the highways up there, there's yeah. this one way there there's this road that comes down it loops around and the loop is kind of a one-way loop and as they're coming they see headlights coming down that road they're like is this the guy coming back now now she's not alone you know she's with these two other young kids but they're just these teenagers and then they said the truck slowly like stopped right around like where the restrooms were and they they were lit up by headlights you know from this truck and then they they kind of just froze and then Instead of continuing on the loop past yeah. them, it backed up mm. and turned around and went out. And um, they were convinced that was probably the guy coming back. Because who else would see that in the headlights and not like come out to try and help or I something? I know, yeah. Exactly. He had a blue, two-tone blue Ford pickup. You know, people at the park earlier in the evening said they saw a guy with a red pickup with a white canopy who was quite neatly dressed in jeans and a white t-shirt. So there are all these kinds of not always consistent kind yeah, of witness who knows? accounts. Yeah, you expect? Terry does try to see if this guy, Richard Dam, had issues with the law. And she does find like a, a few DUIs in the 80s. Also in the 80s, an uh, alleged attack on a co-worker who was a woman's car over some dispute. And another arrest at one point for domestic abuse of his wife. And I don't remember mm. if he was actually convicted yeah. of anything. So the overall impression or the kind of overall conclusion she comes to is she surmises that miscommunication between multiple agencies reported kind of arrogance of the Oregon State Police at that time in relation to local agencies meant that there was a lot of miscommunication. I'm sure. Mm. She thinks part of the lack of concern was that these the victims were from way yeah, back east. From Her parents weren't there hounding them to do exactly. something. And everything. It was easy to just let it go. And also, if, if attempted murder only had three years... I mean, statute of limitations. Yeah, was uh, really she also a... thinks there was this kind of misogynistic yes. lack of concern what about violence against women. Right. Doing... She interviewed Janie's parents and what they remembered about what happened with Janie, and they they were really suspicious of this guy. Right. And like her dad, and went to talk to the police to say we this guy has been dating my daughter, and we think he's the guy. And one of the things that really frustrated them was they had a terrible time getting any, they actually couldn't get really serious charges brought against him for the attack on their daughter. Mm-hmm. You know, day after right. attack in the in the yeah, seed exactly. fields. Yes. And so kind of just reflecting a they lack of concern. And there were sort of, sort of attitudes that what were these girls doing right. biking alone? Well, right. what did they think would happen? They're camping exactly. all around there yeah. and everything. And so there's been no resolution of the case. I get the sense, again, I have to apologize, I didn't fully read the book no, that's because okay. it you, got to the you, point where I was like, man, another description of Juniper that goes on for three pages. <laughs> um, I don't I don't want to make light of it because she's working oh. through the She just trauma. needed a good editor. Yeah, I think Even she professional writer. Yeah, and she's, a, a she's an eloquent writer, but she, it was just, just right. went on and on. I get the sense that she thinks this guy may have done it, but maybe she even herself can't be totally certain. Right. The case remains unsolved. Oh, so, wow. It's similar in a way to, I don't know if you listened to our last episode, but the NNW I did, but I was talking about, you know, like, where do serial killers come from? Not that this guy was a serial killer. Crimes against women back then, but still, somebody does stuff like that. And some of the other guys you mentioned, too, they don't get long sentences. Nobody really takes how dangerous they are seriously. And so they're just allowed to... 
I have one more thing, yeah. John Aykroyd, when she's interviewing, I don't think any of the guys who were central to the Oregon State Police investigation were around anymore for an interview, but she did interview some guys who were kind of tangential. And again, John, to remind listeners, John Aykroyd was the root, was it 20? Root 20. Yeah, no. the Oregon Route 20 just, ca- killer of it. Episode 60. Um, he told her later, you know, they wondered if John Aykroyd had been responsible for their attack. And then she looked at pictures of him and everything as he would have been in 1977. And he was huge. And he yeah. was a big, she's like this guy. And, also, and that just doesn't seem in character with the other crimes he's did. Right, or, or this, this is of. more like a sadistic asshole saying, I'm going to run my truck over that tent. And then, yeah, and that he had he had long standing violent. Um, he was violent not just right. with women, but you know, he you know he would get into fights with right. guys as well. But he so that's where those wow. are my cases. And that kind of reminds me of one of the Appalachian Trail ones where there were those two women right camping in Lally the and um, no, not those two. There were okay. another two women. It was the one that later attacked the guys. He got right. out of prison. Right. He killed the one girl, and then the other one had to run, and she had been stabbed. Right. And she had to run and see It was a young couple that picked her up. Episode 36, I believe. Yes, it was. And they brought her to that. It was very, they were very similar, except her friend died of blood loss. But that guy went to prison for the crime against her and her friend, and then he was out again and then attacked those guys. Yeah. He was camping and those guys offered him yeah. dinner and he attacked them. But it's it's disheartening that a crime like that wasn't taken that seriously. Yeah. Yeah. And also... Well, I think you're right, though, because we've talked about One look before. at the guy's truck probably would have given them some right, evidence. Right. Uh, right. In a lot of these cases, it takes somebody persistent and we've talked about that before with someone one, one of the things that her, the girlfriend Janie said was that he the, the tires were changed next time the mm, next time and um, other people mentioned that too right. you know that he got his tires changed and just think and, if they had looked yeah. at his truck the next day I know, or the day after. I know and the previous one with the family and you really don't know what the details of the investigation were right, but right. you kind of f- feel like there had to be some thing although if that guy's parents were protecting him yeah yeah he, it could be... It's easy, yeah. And he'll never admit it. You know, that's right. what people who know him in prison said. He, he'll never... Right. He, he's never commented or he's never admitted to any of the crimes that they know he actually committed. Right. Um, yeah. And he's never talked about them. He won't... He just won't talk about it wow. at all. It's not like that he'll somehow break and say, okay, yeah, I killed them. Right. You know, but it does kind of show just the arbitrariness of investigations. Exactly. And like you were saying, like a lot of things you see when there's one cop who's like, I'm going to figure this out and they're detailed or and they do... a family right. member that's right. persistent. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and calls them every day. Oh, you were talking about week. family. I was thinking of cops. But too. cops too. too. Right. Yeah. And all also, I won't stay long on this hobby horse because I'm on it a lot and I already mentioned it, but the reliance on lie detectors, which we all know are stupid bullshit, instead yeah. of investigating, forget the lie detector, especially since the guy's on meth, and actually investigate the physical, physical evidence. evidence. clear evidence. Of, yeah. you know. But thank you, but those were thank very you. good. I thought, thought they kind yes. of fit and, well together. One's, yeah. got, one's much right. more known and has been done right. much more in the podcasting world. Oh, it's because it's the 70s I and know. it was before there the are, but There's there are those girls who were killed out who had been camping with their parents near Beverly Beach that I think John Aykroyd victims. I saw, um, I don't know whether it was Crime Junkie saying ascribing those deaths to some other serial killer. And I'm like, people keep up on what's going on in Oregon. Right. I wouldn't trust that. And and also a lot of the internet sleuthing world, they think there's like these seven serial killers who are responsible for everything. When there are plenty of homegrown And even not serial killer, just someone that... Right. Just someone that sees it and does 
does it. And like that guy probably said, oh, look, a tent with these girls and I'm pissed off and I'm a jerk and I'm going to, wouldn't it be fun to run over it with my truck and then chop them down well, like they coyotes. Well, they saying, you know, you know, it seems like a motiveless attack. And I'm like, well, if you're a misogynist psychopath, it's not right. motiveless and, and at all. And that's the other, that's yeah. another thing. This focus on motive, like reasonable people expect people like that to act reasonably. And no, his motive is, why don't I run over them with my yeah, truck? How dare those girls, like, be alone? Right, know? right. I'm going to run over them with my are? truck. because it's. Think- I've always wanted to run over a tent with my truck with people in it to see what would happen. And then I can get out my axe and chop them. You know, that could be the motive. Yeah, You know, know, just like the one with the family. People would say, well, who would, like, abduct a family, blah, blah, right, blah. Right. Maybe the guy's like, you know, I've always wanted to see what would happen if I, if yeah. I took a family with little kids and made the wife, played the wife against the husband yeah, and made yeah, her tie yeah, him up yeah. like in some yeah. bad book, you know. Yeah. Basically, that guy Little was 16 when he, or 15 when he, 15, 17, when he raped and killed that girl. Yeah. yeah. That was his first known, at least. Major. Right. He was a right. serious psychopath, right. rapist, murderer, who obviously had, had no compunctions at all. Right. Ugh. You know, so. And, and, not, and not to victim blame, but Becky's reading The Gift of Fear, so she knows this as well as I do. When your instincts are telling you, you something isn't right there's little signals in your head that are seeing things that you may not be right, totally right, processing right. then your instincts but it's so hard us. it's so right. hard because you second guess yourself especially right. women, women you second guess yourself all the time right you're like am i gonna make a yeah. fool of myself right and like what difference does and it like make you're if you tired make a fool of like the campground feel the campground doesn't feel quite right and it feels kind of creepy and stuff but, but there are all these but families tired there, and, there and you know, right. I mean, yeah, then everybody clears right. out, and they're like, oh, yeah. you know, but... And now, the two of you both have NNWs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Becky, you're doing an NNW? Yes, and it's a change of tone. Oh! So I'm doing it on a book, and the book is Truly Madly Guilty by Liam Moriarty, published in 1996. You're lending me the book, but now I'm going to hear your NNW. Yeah, but I won't give you any spoilers. Okay. I'm going to just go through the the ten things, and then I'll talk about the book. Bad reenactments, and obviously, no, it's a book, so... There's no reenactments. But you could always, like, do flashbacks or something. No, she doesn't. Okay, but it's not bad. Okay. Um, The book, the way it's structured, there's an event that happens. It switches in time from the day of this event to, like, a few months later. And it's clearly marked in the book. It doesn't really get you confused, like... Like it could, but mm. but yes. So she does a good job with that. So okay. no points taken off for that. Narrative cliches, no points taken off. The, one of the things I like about this author, Leanne Moriarty's writing, is her lack of cliches and lack of predictability without being unbelievable. But she doesn't rely on cliches. Racial gender obtuseness, I'm not taking any points off for that. While the characters all seemed white, there were a few who could have been any ethnicity and she only gives general descriptions of characters, like one has thin blonde hair and is skinny or something, and one has like long, like brown hair. One guy has a small head and glasses, like his head's mm. a little small in glasses. But if you're picturing them, it could be anyone you're thinking of. You're, it's not that relevant in the story. There are three married couples in the story, but it's not a big 
part of the right. story, their gender. Lack of good visuals, I'm not taking any points off. The story takes place in Sydney. All her stories take place in Australia. In Australia. She's Australian. Because I was going to say, it could be Sydney, Maine. No. The settings are mostly in people's homes, which are well described because they're part of the... Um, the people's looks aren't described, but their personalities and characters are very well defined. It was easy to picture what was going on and what the people were like. She does mention landmarks of Sydney, obviously the opera house and stuff like that, but it could take place in a lot of places. The storyline has more to do with what happens domestically in the people's homes. There's no missing pieces. It was a very well-resolved story. Uh, you were not like my last book, Town of Front. No inaccuracy and anachronisms. Uh, storytelling, no points off for that. I realize every time I read one of her books, what a great storyteller Leanne Moriarty is. She's put in the domestic thriller category, which makes kind of makes sense, although most of her books, the characters' lives are never in grave danger. There's usually something going on that the reader doesn't know that's revealed, and you have to guess. You have to figure out what's going on. And there's suspense, but it's not like, oh my God, someone's going to get killed. Right. You know, it's not like uh, Lisa Gardner or something. It's right. not the same type of stakes, but it's still really, they're so good. Freshness, no points off. Very fresh. Her voice is very fresh. I always think when I read her books that she knows how to write compelling stories that also have a lot of humor. And it's not like, ha ha, you know, laughing, right. stupid jokes. It's just... Which is a good... The human condition, relationship for, for domestic thriller, there's it, there's a huge lack of humor so that's yes. good that she um when you start reading just to be use a cliche of my own you really don't want to put the book down it's really hard mm-hmm. and all her books are like that at the same time her writing has a real lightness to it and it's hard to describe but it's not it doesn't feel like you're reading something that's really like Ugh. it's very easy to read but it's and it's accessible and it's not angsty even though stuff is happening with the characters that's bad i can't describe it very well but no but that's good that makes sense this book is quite long i think it's eight or nine hundred pages and if you summarize the story you think not much happens doesn't drag at all you repetition no beating the drum um not really a lot of topics come up in the story that might lend themselves to drum beating like hoarding Egg donation, by egg donation, I mean your baby making eggs. Child rearing and relationships, but there's no kind of preachiness about them. So it gets a 10. Wow. I can't think of anything really bad, I'd say, about this book or any of her other books. She's written Big Little Lies, which they made into an HBO series. The first uh, season of that series follows the book pretty well, except it takes place in Monterey, California, instead of wherever Australia but follows it pretty closely, and then the second season kind of goes off from that. But she was a consultant, so... Nine Perfect Strangers is uh, another one I've read that was good, and that's on HBO right now. I've read a lot of her books, but she does have more that I haven't read, so I've got to read them, because I always really like her books. And it, like I said, it's hard to describe what her writing... You'll know when you read it that what I mean. It's not... You feel like you're just reading this easy fiction... I hate to say chick lit, but it's, it's very layered... And it is very, she does get, there's a lot going on and you just don't realize it because her writing is so, the way she describes people, it's not mean-spirited usually, but you get a really good sense of their relationships and the 
there's a really complicated friendship with between these two women and there's just a lot but, but to me it wasn't too much so I oh, highly recommend good. it well, thank and you. I did lend it to you yes so. but Liz I think we have time for yours as okay. well so what I want to do my NNW on is a series documentary series that's on Discovery Plus Ooh, right mm. now called Relentless and it's been um, directed made by filmmaker Christina Fontana and it concerns the disappearance of a young 21-year-old woman named Christina Whitaker. Uh, she disappears in 2009 in Hannibal, Missouri, Ooh. after a night of what looked like kind of bar hopping and stuff. Yeah. And then she's she's just gone, and no one. She walks out of this one bar, and no one ever sees her again. Supposedly, she'd been living with her mother and stepfather. She had an 18-month-old daughter. Fontana spends 10 years investigating the case with many twists and turns, and this case basically ends up kind of consuming her. And so that's sort of you know what the six-hour documentary right. is about. She so remains. She remains. Uh, Christina Whitaker remains missing. Uh, so yeah, why don't you start with the bad reenact going through this? I don't believe there are any remnants. Wow, that's what a plus you, right there. That I th- would say this is something the documentary series does really well. They talk about certain things and they show snippets of home video oh, that's ah, that are somehow relevant nice. to what's being discussed in terms of well, what that's was Christina what like. doing? What was she going mm. through? You know, what was what kind of person was she and everything? And you learn later that the uh, mother who she becomes very close to. Um, has given the oh, I'm, I'm trying to think of it are they both Christina I just realized they there are both are, Christina sorry yeah thank you I'm glad I didn't get that wrong the filmmaker I'll refer to it by that name a, a mother it gives her this huge cache of home videos and um, uh, it's always great when they and, have the home videos, uh, videos right but so no points off for reenactment no points off for reenactment narrative cliches there's a bit of a narrative cliche although as I will explain I, I think I'll just take off half a point for it because mm. she the filmmaker becomes part of the story that i feel is something that is we've seen in a lot of documentaries and it can become a bit cliched it verges on that though as i will explain later uh, in some ways her becoming part of the story the filmmaker becoming part of the story is there's a reason for that okay. um, and it's and i think it's a valid reason but i would put off i would take half a point okay. off I don't know if anyone wants to keep track of the points. I'm keeping track of my head. Okay. Oh, Um, geez, that'll work. Okay, half point. Um, Racial gender obtuseness. No, I think this, uh, they were quite successful here. They're dealing with a working class community in Hannibal, Missouri. And then there are some connections to Peoria, Illinois as well, quite a bit of ways away. There is working class people. There are white and black people in the community. Um, The Whitakers are white. Christina, it looks like she was seen or involved with or in her circle of friends, a number of African-Americans, male and female. A couple of the men who are kind of suspected are African-American men who may or may not be involved in drugs and things like that. Mm. Um, and uh, But there's never any sort of... It's just these are the people who are involved right. in the story. And it, it's, I think that's done very well that this... You know, the, this is the community of people who are involved with this family. And, you know, in many ways, it's a less segregated social milieu than a lot of more middle class affluent people. Yeah. Have. Okay. Um, and that kind of is reflected. So lack of good visuals. I would say that the visuals are well done. There's a lot, again, like no use of cheesy recreations. It's all stuff, family photos, family videos, and they are going to all these different places. So you're sort of seeing the places where things happened and everything. So I would say they do well. Missing pieces. 
Here I would take away, I, wanna, I wonder if I want to take away as much of a, as a point. Considering that she worked on this for 10 years, there are some very kind of shocking and unexpected twists and turns. Oh, um, that she is shocked? She is, mm-hmm. and the viewers okay. are. There are things that kind of come up that you never really get resolved. Oh, One is there's, a, there's a, a point where there are things about the missing girl. It turns out basically that, it, and there are benign explanations for this, that the family has said things about the missing girl, basically painted her to be a much more kind of a goody two-shirts girl than she really was. Uh, which, yeah. and, which is not unexpected, happen, but, it, but yeah. it's, it's carried out to quite an extreme. And they're also, the mother is acting pretty much on the premise that her daughter is alive and maybe was trafficked and is up like working as a prostitute or something up in Peoria. And there are sorts of things that I, as given that she worked on this for 10 years, it's like, did you tie up that loose end? Did you really tie up that lead that you were telling us about a little earlier? Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of inconclusiveness. Mm. So I'm thinking maybe I should give it one point. Take away one point. Because there there are multiple things where you're just like, Yes. Whatever happened with that, you yeah, know, and, it, yeah. and partly it's just like un- the unknowableness mystery. of the whole story. But there are some things you feel like, given that she worked on it so long, she should have been able to pin down. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Inaccuracies and anachronisms. No. Storytelling. So. Storytelling. I will take off half a point. I, on the whole, I thought it was done well. You are drawn along in a way that she was drawn along. Uh, she spends what I think is an inordinate amount of time just t- kind of taking everything this family tells her at face value. Mm. I mean, it's like three years in that she starts to suspect that maybe they're not oh, being totally not. Is she a journalist? Um, no, I don't think she is. I don't think she has a journalism background. She says mm. she's a filmmaker. She got involved with this family because she was doing some sort of project on the families of missing mm. people. Mm-hmm. And she got drawn in by this particular case. Uh, she's clearly very sincere and well-meaning. So there are too many shots of her sitting there. Uh, uh, kind of, this kind of relates to the cliche where mm. she's sitting there in the bed, like kind of weepy or something, going, uh-huh. "I don't know." Da, 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 yeah. oh, and God. I and I feel like this does not help the storytelling. No. Maybe a little bit of that because because she does become part of the story. She starts to realize at one point she said, "Are they playing me? Are they exploiting mm. me?" And, and she says me? this to the camera. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And that's <laughs> oh, she says it actually to a private investigator oh, okay. that she okay. that oh, that the family hired. Is there any who clearly is beginning to have doubts about some of the things? Right. The is there any of her that's driving that's around in the car, yeah. leaving messages for people that. and talking? Yeah, on there's the phone. there's stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. okay, that. then yes. that deserves a point off. Yeah, yeah. okay. I'm gonna have to watch it. Yeah, yeah, no, it's worth watching. Yeah, I'm gonna oh, watch no, it. I took half a point off. You took yeah, half yeah, a point. I think I took okay, half freshness. I think I've already said there's some narrative cliches. Which well, indicates, yeah, but you can define but, freshness. But on the, but <laughs> on the, but there's, on the other hand, yeah. in a way, her becoming, the filmmaker becoming part of the documentary is, in fact, one guy, the, the um, private investigator, she does then hire her own private investigator oh, who helps her. The, this Where do helps these people her. get this money? She must be getting doing fundraising to right. fund her project. She does say at one point that she, she's going broke. She says, this is, you know, wrecking my finances. You never, one of the things I will say on this category, one of the things you don't hear, you don't hear anything about her own private life. Uh-huh. So she says, this is wrecking my private life, it's wrecking my finances. And, and you see how she is interacting with the case and how she's not sure who's telling her the truth and all this stuff. But you don't hear about all her life back in Los Angeles. You don't hear about any of that. So in right. that sense, I'll be like, great, she didn't bring all that in. Right. She, she's only put herself 
in it to the extent that she is trying, how it impacts the investigation and whether she's finding out what really happened to this girl or not. So in that sense, I'll say, yeah. Are you, so are you not taking away any points for that category? It's fresh. It is fresh. Yeah, I think I think she does enough that's kind of not okay. just yeah, okay. the same old, same old. Yes. That it's Repetition? No, um, in fact, I'd say that's one of the good things about it. You know, when th- something that was discussed earlier comes up, it's because she's got a different take on it. Or, ooh, that doesn't really feel like what really right. was all this thing But it's none about. of these things where you come back from a commercial or the next episode and she shows the same interview with yeah. the same person yeah. over okay. again. Yeah. 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 Okay. And then the last one is beating the drum. Um, I'll take half a point of that. On the, if you can call beating the drum, it's not on a particular issue or, or anything. It can be whatever you want it's, it to be. It's her kind of harping on her feeling like mm. like oh my god this is consuming me why i can't come to any conclusions i don't know what's what's really happening and that i think you know is kind of cliched and also i would put it in this kind of beating the drum it's like mm-hmm. some of that is relevant to what's going on right. with her experience with this family and this case but I think she kind of goes... Too much time is spent on her belaboring all of it. And so it's on Discovery, you said? A Discovery Plus. Oh. And you do feel... The, the fact that you don't come to firm answers is part of the story. I still think, though, that I don't think she could be a, a seasoned journalist or investigator. Again, I'm not sure what her background is, the filmmaker. she's This is like the third year, and she decides from what the private investigator that the family hired is telling her, he clearly has qualms about this family. You know, and he's kind of trying to warn her. Mm. And and she then hires her own private investigators who quickly find out stuff. I mean, this is now she's been into this for several that years. That she hasn't found out in three that, years. That should be. <laughs> One was that the family had appeared on some one of these shows, you know, where they talk about, you know, like where they confront people. Like a world. Jerry Springer like, type thing. It's like Jerry Springer, but yeah. I don't know if it's a more local version. Or, it's not someone it's I some recognize. Yeah. In that show, they give a totally different account of what that last day of Christina's was like and what was going on in the family mm. than they have to the filmmaker. Oh, and so the private investigators say, did you know that the family and the mother and everything right. appeared on, on such and such show? And she's like, no. And they said, well, and you know, and then it shows clips. Doesn't from it. she have Google? I know. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe this is the kind of, but that's sort of when she, right. she realizes I've been taking them what they're telling me at face value for right. far So too can long. I ask, is uh, it a case like the Maura Marie documentary where there's a lot of attention on the family and private life that may not have to do with the disappearance? There's some of that. It? This is though not a case that's like some big internet sensation that I can... Like does the family's sketchiness have to do with the disappearance possibly okay but possibly not okay you know you, i'll have to watch there's it. a lot of stuff and then there are various accusations wonder, that you don't know how well found has been on any uh, like on that disappeared show it anything. might have been oh, i think i don't know slightly, but there's slightly. so many women that women have who disappeared, disappeared after leaving yes, a bar yeah, there's so, and, yeah. many. so anyways well, but it's good so that was seven and a half points you gave it so it sounds that's pretty good i would definitely recommend it it's it's pretty engrossing you know good thank you liz once again for being a guest thank you for having Thank you, everybody. And um, I guess I'm up next. Yes. I don't want to make any promises. I might have uh, Gerard Goodell part two. Ooh. Ooh. It depends on whether I can get to the state library with the Delta variant, you know, and having to make an appointment to use the microfilm. There's another variant, too, now. But if I don't have that. Our shores yet. Mm, Great. great. But if I don't have that, I'll have something else. Okay, good. You better? Because I don't have any. Okay, bye. Okay, thanks for listening. Bye -bye. Bye.
No, I don't think so. Never. Hang on. Sorry, silence. The hell? Jesus. Mom probably set the house on fire. You know, there was one point where. Hang on a minute. Must be an accident. Well, every single thing, vehicle, or it's a parade. Is there a Labor Day parade? Uh, Um, there. It wouldn't have been this late. They usually have like. That's true. At ten in the morning, yeah, it wouldn't be. Although four thirty, I don't know. It just seems like an awful lot of sirens. Either the city's burning down, or let me just see. But we haven't heard any music. Just sirens. And they seem to be going kind of fast for a parade. Yeah, I don't think it's a parade. <laughs> so it must be a fire. No, there isn't anything. It must be a fire because that, that's Labor a fire Day truck. Yeah. The yeah. Great Turnout, Factory Girls, and Maine's First Labor Strike. Yeah. Jesus Christ. 